Uh, it's good to be together, uh, especially uh, those of you who are with us online. Glad you're here as you're able to be here. And if you're a guest with us this morning, glad you're able to be with us as well. Many of you know, maybe most of you know, we're doing this series with about 150, maybe as many as 200 other churches in the Bay Area called Explore God, uh, during which time we're going to focus on, or we have been, we are focusing on seven really important, interesting questions that are particularly geared to people who are curious, who are seekers, who have, who have questions, maybe who have doubts, uh, who are outside of the faith, uh, but not outside of God's love. So those questions are, uh, does life have a purpose, which we talked about last week? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus God? Is the Bible reliable? And can I know God personally? And of course, uh, there are easier questions out there for the preacher to deal with, easier questions for us to wrestle with during these seven weeks, but we are not interested in easy, we are interested in important, as we really want to move beyond the insignificant or the peripheral or the superficial to talk about things that really, really matter, uh, not just out there, not just in theological libraries or seminaries or among academics, but that really, really matter to us and for humanity. These are deeply human questions and questions that really matter for everyday life today and tomorrow and the rest of the course of our lives and eternity. So uh, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus God? Is the Bible reliable? Can I know God personally? Uh, we're going to talk this morning about is there a God, but before we do that, let's pray again. God has been uh, prayed, uh, help us to be attentive to your word when we get to that. Help us always, even in the midst of our busyness and franticness and stress and distractions, help us to be attentive to you. We're not going to ask you to come here uh, you're already, you were here before we got here. Uh, you're in our midst. We only ask that you would help us by your grace to be attentive to you. Speak to our spirits through your spirit. I pray and ask that uh, as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. Plant within each of us, God, seeds that will bring us joy and that will bring you glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Is there a God? Or why should I believe there's a God? And of course, this is really an odd question. Of the seven questions, it's the oddest of the questions uh, to wrestle with from here on Sunday morning with us, uh, at least among those who believe in God, because we are here, most of us presumably already, because we believe in God. This building, this campus, this room, this space exists because people who have gone before us believed in God, that God was there, that there is a God, and, that be, and because we also believe that there is a God. Uh, we sang, we began our worship service by singing to a God, to God. We began by singing uh, because we believed that there was a God who was there, who we were worshiping. Gladys talked with the children about a God who we believe in, who, they, who she believes in. Uh, we have prayed, I prayed, to God, to the one I believe and the church has believed in, and that this God is, simply is, 
existed, exists, and will continue to exist. But there have been times when some of us, or maybe many of us, or maybe most of us, have questioned the existence of God, wondered about that and questioned the reality of God. And two, there are people out there, and probably some in here, and maybe many in here, who either haven't ever believed in God or who don't currently believe in the existence of God or a God, and it is to that part of each of us and to that part of us and the world out there that this morning's message is primarily directed. Is there a God? At this point, uh, the question is very basic. We're not going to talk this morning about is there a Christian God? We'll get to that in a few weeks. Instead, we're talking simply about deity, divinity, uh, higher power out there, a personal entity who acts and has will and who has uh, characters, characteristics and traits. Is there such a God? We normally begin with uh, scriptures, with the Bible, with the Old and New Testaments, with Uh, what we consider to be uh, the Word of God and the words of God inspired and authoritative. Uh, However, such a starting place largely presupposes the existence of God. So I'm going to start in a little bit different way or place this morning, and particularly with experience and my experience. I was raised in the church. My parents were both church-going people. I was raised in the church from the time I was born. Uh, That was the environment. Every Sunday, we went to a church. And the atmosphere there, of course, the sort of the understanding was that there was a God and that we were there because of that God. We didn't talk much about God at home, though. There were no expressions of faith other than prayer time before dinner. And so there wasn't much articulation or pressure or example in my life growing up. And yet I remember very clearly, as maybe some of you do, that as a child I had this sense or this awareness or this thought or this belief that there was a God. It wasn't an articulate or well-articulated or complex uh, theological understanding of who God was and what God is, but I had this sense always from the earliest time I can remember memories that there was a God, that there is a God, that there was a God near, a God who could hear me, maybe a God who even spoke, and a God who cared. I had that sense, and I don't think that was all that unusual in retrospect about children and childhood and the way things go. C.S. Lewis wrote in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, a bit of which I shared last Sunday, uh, this is a little bit more, Lewis wrote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world or maybe made from another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise it or to be unthankful for it, 
these earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, my true home, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you have had those experiences over the course of your life or seasons in your life when your involuntary thought or thinking was, there must be a God. There is a God. There's a God. There's got to be a God. There's got to be. Such thoughts sometimes come to people's minds when circumstances seem to line up almost miraculously or experiences of profound grace come upon them or moments of profound gratitude. Who do you thank? Who is there? To th is there someone to thank? Where did all this come from? From, who, from whose hand am I benefiting? Or when in solitude one experiences a still small voice in those moments, who is that? Is there someone there? Or sometimes when one is out in nature, creation, or when one is observing nature or creation and aware of one's own smallness and insignificance, and at the same time of the hugeness and the grandeur of creation, it may have been at such a time that the author of the 19th Psalm wrote these words, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, Day after day, they pour forth speech, word, truth. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They had no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the words of the Apostle Paul to, uh, in chapter one of his letter to the Christians in Rome, he wrote these words. What may be known about God is plain to people at least some of it, because God has made it plain to people. For since the creation of the world, the very beginning the world, of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, in other words, creation, so that people are without excuse. A week or two ago, a friend of mine who was on vacation somewhere out in the Pacific sent me these two photos uh, which served to illustrate the psalmist and the Apostle Paul's point about creation while also introducing us to the even broader idea of beauty in nature, in art, in animals, in other people. Or these photos from the Hubble telescope. Click, click, click. When one spends just moments with him, one is amazed that all that's out there and not just out there but the beauty and the majesty and the grandeur of it. Did these things just happen? Or are they the fingerprints of something or someone so much bigger? That we recognize and admire things that are beautiful points to something that is at work in the world and work at work in us that is beyond just evolution as recognizing beauty provides no evolutionary advantage. Thus, unless everything is meaningless, beauty in itself points to a creator. 
beauty points to a creator who values beauty. And there's more. Those of a more rational mindset have always been fascinated by the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Maybe most of us don't think about that on a daily basis, but at some point you may have, and some deep thinkers do. Why is there something rather than nothing? This question has become even more interesting to people in the wake of the now almost universally accepted Big Bang Theory. There is significant evidence that the universe is expanding explosively and outwardly from a single tiny point. The renowned physicist, cosmologist, and author Stephen Hawking, an atheist, wrote, almost everything, everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Scientists, uh, and I, I talked about him last week, uh, head of the Genome Project, the uh, director of the Centers, the Institutes of Health, for 12 years under three different presidents. Francis Collins put his, puts this in layman's language in his little book, The Language of God, in these, in these ways, with these words. We have this very solid conclusion that the uh, universe had an origin, the Big Bang. 15 billion years ago, the universe began with an unimaginably bright flash of energy from an infinitesimally small point that implies that before that, there was nothing. Which goes to Genesis 1. I can't imagine how nature, he writes, in this case, the universe could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. There's a cute little story. I'm not sure I can remember it all, but I'm going to try. Uh, all the scientists get together and they're like, we know how to uh, clone genes. We know how to clone animals. Uh, we know how to uh, dissect DNA now. we got the genome in our pocket. We're uh, ready to be done with God now. And so uh, all the scientists get together, one of them, and this is not to denigrate scientists, you're wonderful, those of you who are scientists. Uh, the scientists get together, they send one scientist to God, and he says, uh, I think we're ready to go head to head with you now, God. We've got enough knowledge, enough uh, um, resources, enough uh, expertise. We believe we can, we can create humanity. And so God accepts the challenge. Uh, they meet up the next day. Here we go, ready, set, go. Uh, the scientist says, who wants to go first? God says, you can go first. The scientist says, okay. He takes some dirt. God says, hold on a minute. That's my dirt. That's my dirt. I created it. What are you going to start with? The devoted atheist Sam Harris retorts, even if we accepted that our universe simply had to be created by an intelligent being, this would not suggest this being is the God of the Bible. And Harris is actually correct in this assertion. Nevertheless, Collins and the Big Bang Theory actually provided for us another clue and even stronger evidence that there is something or someone out there, something or someone beyond the natural and physical world, who when there was nothing, created. And interesting, the word create in Hebrew is bara, and the only time in the Bible that the word bara shows up is connected to God. Only God creates. How did they know that thousands of years ago? And then there's the matter of justice or rightness or fairness. Think of the many examples of injustice that we've witnessed in just the recent years in our area, in our country, in the world continually. 
The evening news, our news feeds, our home pages have been filled with images of protesters crying out, people who themselves have either experienced individual or systemic or cultural or institutional injustice or who have witnessed that around them in their homes in the world. At schools and on playgrounds and in homes, we hear children crying out, that's not fair. Because a sense of fairness and injustice is part of being human. We feel a longing for the world to be put right. We all know that at times and in places and in ways, the world is not as it should be. Our world. Like when one kid gets to do something that some of the other kids don't get to because of the other kids, because the other kids don't measure up in some way. Or like in our history and sometimes in our present when some people get certain rights and others don't because of the color of their skin. Or like when men get treated one way in the workplace and women get treated another because, well, for no good reason. Like when some public schools get all the perks and the latest tools for learning and other public schools get less or little because of the tax base in their particular local district. Or like when some people get medical care and some people don't because... If you want it, you have to earn it. Or like when you turn on the news and hear about a particular ethnic group or religious group somewhere in the world being systemically oppressed, forced from their homes, forced from their property, forced from their countries, their homes, and even murdered because of where they were born or what their last name is or what they believe. C.S. Lewis, again, one of the uh, greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century, wrote, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way, and they cannot get rid of that. We have this inborn sense of right and justice and fairness, as the children show us. Where does that impulse come from, if not from some right and just and fair being by whom we were made and in whose image we were made? Where else could that come from? Such a trait does not surface through evolutionary biology. In fact, evolution or the survival of the fittest would suggest exactly the opposite would come about, would be true. And similarly, what about goodness and love? We human beings have this sense about goodness, about what is good. Where does that sense of what is good or goodness at all come from? Where might a sense of virtue come from? We know the desires of our hearts are too often for our own well-being, our own advantage, our own pleasure, our own security. Where does the voice within us that lifts up and calls for goodness come from? It doesn't come from ourselves. And then there it is what has been called the cosmic welcome mat. I like that sort of big picture door welcome mat. For organic life to exist, the fundamental regularities and constants of physics, the speed of light, the gravitational constant, the strength of the weak and the strong nuclear forces must all have values that together fall in an extremely narrow range. The probability of this perfect calibration happening by chance is so tiny to be statistically negligible. Again, Francis Collins puts it well when he writes, when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. 
There are 15 constants, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, et cetera, that have very precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million millions, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. Some have said that if there were a large number of dials that all had to be tuned to within extremely narrow limits, they have been. It seems extremely unlikely that this would happen by chance. Stephen Hawking, again, the brilliant and renowned cosmologist, physicist, atheist, concludes, the odds against the universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications to this too. Elsewhere, Hawking says, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like this. Still some mystery, but a clue. And so given these and other experiences, clues and reasons, it's not a surprise that the overwhelming majority of people in the world believe in some sort of God or gods. And the same is true in America, despite the continuing decline in attendance and affiliation with churches. The overwhelming majority of Americans say they believe in some form of God or some version of God where there is reluctance by some to believe in God. Such reluctance seems to often be about, not about God, but about religion and the institutionalization of God rather than about God himself. But most people in the world even think about it, even in outlawed places where faith, religion, Christianity has been outlawed like communism, Russia, North Korea, China. Even in those places, there is belief in God and sometimes strong belief in some sort of God. They may be reticent to speak about the kind of God in which they believe or what, they, or what the God they believe in is like, but they still believe in God by choice and by inclination. The struggle of many people in our culture, though, is the ability to or the interest in saying or articulating more about the God in whom they believe, either because in a pluralistic world they don't want to sound like they know everything or exclusive or above everyone else, or because they simply haven't given much thought to such things they haven't ever, ever intentionally explored, or because they've had some sort of negative experience or encounter with the church or with religion. And I get that. One only needs to look back in history a little bit or a lot in human history and to see all of the horrible things that have been done in the name of God in the name of religion, even in the name of and by the church, by those even who follow Jesus. It is a disaster in some places and some points. But when one looks back, then one can understand how some will have little interest in belief in God, faith in God, the reality of God, an experience with God. I get that. 
At the same time, lots and lots and lots of what we would call good has been done in the name of God and by people who look to God and trust God and worship God and who follow Jesus, for sure. Hospitals and orphanages and homes for the dying, mercy ministries, universities, schools, daycares, homeless shelters, addiction ministries, rescue missions, philanthropic foundations, and sometimes even the local church. And yet none of those things will outweigh for some people the times that they have personally gotten hurt or burned in church by the church, by a religious person. There have been so many scandals even in our lifetimes, compromises of integrity, infidelity, embezzlement, and even wars committed in the name of and by religious people. It kills me. I remember Tony Campolo, who was first and foremost a professor of sociology at Eastern University, Eastern College but who was also a preacher and author and speaker and prominent evangelical Christian leader. I remember him saying numerous times how he would say to his students who claimed or identified themselves as atheists, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in because there's a really good chance I don't believe in that God either. And then there's this just quirky observation that I couldn't help but note. It seems that people who tend to believe more in God or a God or in, uh, do so in the face of death or when facing death. It seems that people tend to believe more in God in the face of death when in, uh, encountering death, which might be out of fear or might be out of finally taking seriously eternity or might be about clearing the deck and getting in touch with the reality of each of our spirits when these bodies are done. Conversely, people who tend to believe less in God, it seems, when belief in God is inconvenient, when belief in God or God or a God necessitates a response of some sort from a person. Do you know what I mean? The, the, the number and percentage of people who all of a sudden believe in God when they get near death or when they face death or in the face of a loved one's passing, the rate of belief in God seems to go up rather well, whereas the, the number of people who believe in God during our everyday busy lives seems to be lower. Nevertheless, we seem to be wired for eternity, though busyness can get in the, in the middle of that. So I get why some people don't believe in God or a God. People think that just because God can't be put uh, under a microscope and God's existence can't be proved, proved in science, I don't know what that was, can't be proved in certain scientific ways. People believe that just because God can't be walked out on a platform, or people believe that because many terrible things have been done in God's name, that God doesn't exist, that there must not be a God. I get all of that. I mean, I understand that. I get that. And yet my experience from the time that I was a child, and with an inquiring mind that wants to know, say something completely different. The clues to the existence of God and even the proofs or evidence of at least some personal creating, governing, doing good, loving God, interacting reality to me is undeniable. And so if you have questions, if you're in that questioning mode or place or season, or you have questions about just the, simply the very existence of God, I encourage you to explore. That's what we're doing during these seven weeks, to explore and to do so openly, 
God is not threatened. God is not offended by your exploring. And neither should the church be. In conclusion, though, let me share with you uh, the challenge of the 17th century mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, Christian writer, uh, Blaise Pascal. He challenged the intellectual community with whom he hung out of his time to consider faith in God in a way that became known as his wager, Pascal's wager. He presented it this way. If one chooses not to not believe in God and one ends up being right that there is no God, and that person really has lost nothing. If one chooses not to believe in God and one's a, one ends up being wrong, one has lost everything. If one chooses to believe in God and one is wrong, one has again lost nothing, at least as far as eternity goes. But if one chooses to believe in God and trust that God and one ends up being right, one has gained everything in this life and in the life to come. Let's pray. God of the universe, God of eternity, God of this space and time, Lord of heaven and earth, we believe in you. Help us in our unbelief. We trust you. Help us to grow in faith and confidence. You are here, we believe. You are among us, we know. And not just as an impersonal being out there who remains aloof, a clockmaker who creates a clock and then lets it go. But instead, you are, we believe, like a loving parent, like a benevolent father who would go to the ends of the earth to be reconciled to his children. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in that way and with that heart as you are. We confess that we all have been the wayward children in faith and out of faith, struggling, running to, and running away. Thank you for accepting us as we are and drawing us into your life and your love. Through the gift of your beloved Son, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Thank you for your invitation to this table that we might have life, find life, and live life in you and in your name. As we eat and drink together in a moment, unite us to one another and unite us to yourself. Unite us to yourself, your spirit, and our spirits and unite us with one another in and as your body, Christ the Lord. These things we pray with gladness and joy in Jesus' name, amen.